grateful to be able to stand and proclaim God's word today, what the Lord has placed on my heart for us to consider and to contemplate and to reflect. And at the end of the day, we can say, Lord, it is well with me. It is well with my soul. I invite you to turn with me to the to the book of Acts chapter 11, and we'll finish up this chapter today. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 uh, through verse 30. And the title of today's sermon is Ordained to Serve and Dispatch. We are ordained to serve and to dispatch. Now, I know one of the things we talk about in the life and health of the church is to the degree of which we stand and sit down. We also talk about that a lot. But I'll ask you again out of reverence for the reading of the word. Let's stand again and let's read verse 19 through 21. I'm going to be reading from 19 to 21 and then we'll encapsulate it at the end. Verse 22 to verse 30. God's word says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Let me read that again so that soaks in. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word today. And to some degree, Lord, we want to implore of a special blessing. Uh, Father, I don't know if that's appropriate or theological at all, God, but we want to pour our heart before you. We want to lay before you and be transparent before you. And God, turn our mind towards your word. Speak to us through it today. As I am the vessel, the expositor, the preacher today, God, I pray you hide me behind the cross of Christ Jesus. May Jesus be exalted and may the church be edified through the preaching of the word and by your blessed Holy Spirit. And I pray these things now in Jesus' most powerful and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so today is a special day. Um, for many of us, particularly two gentlemen today and their families, it will be a special day for them. But it is also a special day for all of the corporate gathering here today. It is a special day, a day of worship, a day of praise, a day of adoration to King Jesus. And what's so, what's so great about worship to Christ is that we don't simply have to wait till Sunday morning to do, to do that. We, we can worship God in our kitchen. We can worship the Lord Jesus in our bathroom, in our shower. We can worship the Lord wherever we are because the Lord promised us that he would never leave us nor will he never forsake us and we can worship. But it is such a blessing to be able to gather with the church, to be able to assemble with the saints of the Lord and hear it as well with my soul, to hear the songs of old, to hear uh, the theologically rich and robust songs that we sing and let them not only engage our ears, but engage our heart. What a blessing it is to do that. 
And as you know, we have been working through the book of Acts, and we have already noticed some we have noticed some tremendous events that happened throughout biblical history. Luke the evangelist, he is, he is transcribing what God has been doing in the church. He, he dictates these events, not in an exact chronological order. They are not in an exact chronology, but they are marked in order of significance and importance from the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the uttermost parts towards the nations. And this message is the good news of the risen Messiah. So Luke records in significance and importance and how the Lord was opening the avenue, not only for the Jew, but to the Gentile and for the whosoever will will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. If you remember the last sermon that we were get together, we noted some things of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul preached a message to the Gentiles. He was called to the house of Cornelius. They were anticipating Peter's arrival. And as he gave this report, as he made much of Jesus in the home of Cornelius, and he, and he, he saw many come to the Lord Jesus, he reports back to his brothers in the Lord Jesus in Judea, the church at Judea, and he reports back to them. And as Peter is reporting all that the Lord was, was doing amongst the Gentile believers, this gospel explosion of sort, Luke details the words in verse 18 of chapter 11. This is the demeanor of the church, which I think is applicable and noteworthy. He says, they heard these things of how God was saving even the Gentiles. They fell silent, almost in a, in a state of awe and adoration and worship and contemplation. They heard these things. They fell silent. And the Bible says they glorified God. And what did they say? Well, then to the Gentiles, also God has called and granted repentance that leads to life. This is my story. This is my song. That God calls the lost as they repent of their sin. And that repentance leads to life eternal. And so... We read through the remainder of the chapter and we pressed through the book of Acts. There is a clear revelation that comes to bear. Something is revealed. The word revelation in the Greek means apocalypsis, means an uncovering, an unveiling, a lifting of the veil. So something is done in the book of Acts, a revelation, a lifting of the veil, a disclosing something that was not disclosed before. And what is this revelation that is revealed? It becomes very clear. It becomes revealed that every person who calls on the Lord Jesus in repentance, the Lord moves them from darkness into His glorious light. And as we are called on mission from darkness into light, we are then also called to be on mission for Him. And this mission comes in many capacities, it comes in many forms, it comes in many positions, it comes in many postures, it comes in many services, and those that are serving from pastors to elders to missionaries to evangelists to deacons, we are all called to lift high the name of Jesus. There's no pedigree that is involved with you lifting up the name of Jesus, just simply, you must be born again. That is, that is the criteria. And by the way, we are to do this until he returns. You'll notice in the book of Acts, the apostles and the people in the churches, they are serving the Lord in this capacity. You'll also notice that amongst the mix is deacons. Deacons who are called to serve, to work. Acts chapter 6, 
tells us of the calling of these initial seven deacons. And by the time that we get to chapter 8, one of these deacons becomes prominent in the community. We will see this first, one of the first called deacons, not only faithful to his calling and serving, but faithful even until death. We know him by Stephen. Stephen is now in the presence of the Lord Jesus, but he will forever be memorialized. He will forever be encapsulated in the canon of the Scripture, forever be recorded as the first martyr for the name of Jesus. He will forever be realized as that faithful servant who died for Jesus amongst a multitude of many to come. But at the conclusion of this sermon today, we'll have a challenge and a charge, not only to our two deacons who we have observed and called out from among us, but we'll have a challenge for the whole body of Christ to be faithful servants, and then we will ordain, or, then we will ordain these two men to the office of deacon, and to that I say, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. So what I want us to do is look at verse 19, chapter 11. A couple of things that I'm going to pull out from the text and expose it to you today from the text. Number one is that we are sent out to pierce the veil. We are sent out to pierce the veil. You'll notice in the initial reading in verse 19, there is a word that is used that talks of Stephen as he traveled. In this word, we get this sense of piercing through. We as a church have been racking our brain, historically and even now. We, we rack our brain trying to figure out how to reach a younger generation. Books have been written, seminars have been led on it, teaching have, has been scribed out. How to reach this younger generation. We rack our brains. What can we do? How to implement successful ministry and how to draw the attention of a younger generation who, I might add, is seeking authenticity. They want to see deep roots. They want to see integrity. They want to see that you mean what you say and you say what you mean and that we believe in Jesus to the point that our actions will match our testimony. They want authenticity. How do we reach this younger generation? How do we implement successful ministries? We come away with questions. We ask ourselves, what can be done? Have we exhausted all of our resources? What can we do to reach this, a younger generation, younger families? And we rack our brain and we come to the conclusion and say, I don't know if there's anything that we can particularly do. And I'll submit to you two things that we certainly can do. And so I form these in a way of questions. And you can write these down. You can take them to heart, commit them to memory, commit today that, yes, Lord, I commit today. So let me ask you this. Think about it, chew on it, and I will ask you this again at the end of the sermon and our time today. Number one, ask yourself this. Have I prayed fervently for people by name? Have I prayed for these young families by name? I, I, and what I mean by fervently praying is, is that burden becomes part of your DNA. We pray for folks who don't know the Lord all the time. We pray for people by name. 
want us to pray to the point where it becomes part of our DNA to that we, we can't do anything else but to try to act upon that burden. Pray fervently for people by name. Mention them by name. Make a list by name. Hey, I still believe in the power of prayer. Pray for these folks. Pray for people who are far from God. Pray how we might be engaged to the point where the Lord instills with you a burden, not only for the lost, but those folks who aren't engaged, whether they're young or old. So ask yourself, have I prayed fervently for people by name? Secondly, have I contacted them to see how they are with the Lord? Very simple question. And I simply don't mean, hey, call and, and find out how the crops are doing or how their families are doing. Those are good things. Don't get me wrong. How's school going for the kids? I'm, I'm talking about meaning business and to the point where it might almost seem like you're meddling a bit. How's your walk with the Lord? I don't think that anybody would be offended if you ask them, how's your walk with the Lord? Number one, that shows that you care and are you concerned with their walk with Jesus. How's your walk with the Lord? I am invested in your life to see you walk with Jesus, to grow in Christ. I am invested in seeing you and your family grow in the Lord. Are you walking close and clean to Jesus? And by the way, these are, these are questions I think that are, that are very important for us to ask of ourselves too. How's my walk with the Lord? See, you might know people and have relationships with people and can talk with certain people that the pastors can never talk to. Not on that intimate level. Verse 19. Now this is, are those that were scattered because of the persecution. Stephen was stoned and the church scattered. They scattered as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And they were preaching and speaking the word to no one except for the Jews. But then it says, there were some of them that went outside of the of, of to the Jews and began to speak to those Hellenists in Antioch and preaching the Lord Jesus to them. So this is almost a third set of people that is described only 11 chapters into the book of Acts. First, you have the believers coming to faith in the upper room described in Acts chapter 2 where Peter preached after the, after the Holy Spirit fell and 3,000 people were saved and we marvel at that. But the Bible is so full of people being added to the Lord. And by the time we even get to Stephen, we already have about 10,000 plus people who have come to know the Lord Jesus. The second, we find the believers in the house of Cornelius. And then outward. A third group, you might say, is this group here. The believers who were scattered after the stoning of Stephen, pursued by one Saul. Then the evangelist Luke, he picks back up where he left off with Saul, the persecutor, after his conversion on the Damascus Road. And then we track him all the way up, his timeline through Cyprus all the way to Antioch. Now, Antioch is important. We'll revisit that in a moment. But what I want you to do, I want you to look at this map. And if you were to lay out an ancient map, it's as ancient as probably I can get off of Google, and if you were to look at this map of Jerusalem, up towards the north, you see Antioch. You see Cilicia up there. Now, this is where Paul is now, or Saul is located right now, as Luke is writing this out. 
But I want you to notice here is Cyprus, but it's east of Syria. It's like a little island that is actually west of Syria. And then you see all the way west across the Mediterranean Sea is Cyrene. And this is all in the timeline reported by Luke. Now, I don't show you this map just simply for a geography lesson. And I'm probably the worst in the world with geography and trying to track where things are in the world. I know where Israel's at. I know where some of the things in Israel's at. I know the states in America. But geography is not my lesson. This is not for a geography lesson. But I I want you to see and get a visual of how active this early church was in spreading the gospel of Jesus, north, east, south, and west, to the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. And they're quite not finished, obviously. I want you to see how active this early church is. This is a span already less than 10 years since the resurrection. God is moving His church outward and not inward. Can you imagine if the early church met in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 and they just wanted to have everything about them and they started erecting programs about how they can uh, better, uh, better serve themselves in that little community and become a little club, a little country club and very inward focused. Could you imagine if the early church was inward and not outward? I would imagine that the wrath of the Lord Jesus would have somehow moved them out into the world. And I think some of the, some of the persecution that we see from, uh, from, from Stephen moving the church outward was a byproduct of this. If you're not going to move out, I'm going to move you out into the world. And Antioch is important. But there are Jewish-speaking followers of Christ there who are preaching the gospel of Jesus. A little bit about Antioch. It is an important metropolitan Place It is the metropolis or the city of Syria and, and all the way through Damascus next to Rome and Alexandria. It competes in size and wealth and power and money. There are many Jews in this cosmopolitan area that we would, that we would call Antioch, probably around 500,000 people in population. And by the Lord's providence and by the Lord's uh, protection, and by the Lord's sovereignty, Antioch would eventually replace Jerusalem as the center of Christian activity. It is so important that everything that we do as a church be intentional and with gospel purpose. Why do you think that I ask those questions at the forefront of our time in God's Word? Why do you think I ask these questions? Because we must evaluate our heart. We must evaluate our church. We must evaluate our ministries. We must evaluate everything that filters through the local assembly and even in our personal lives and say, what are my intentions in this ministry? What is my purpose in this ministry? Do we function with a gospel initiative, with a gospel agenda, or is our agenda preference driven? So the early church church was intentional. And we'll see later on as Saul goes into the churches, they were intentional. They were going to where the people were. They were engaging them with the gospel. They were meeting them where they were. 
Their initiative was go out into the cities and to preach Jesus. Go in the fields and find the men. Go on the people and find the men. Find the people who need to hear the message. Meet them in the field if you have to. Meet them in their home if you have to. And we say this often, that there is an issue of folks who are not necessarily coming back to the church again. And we rack our brain, and we can look even right now. We can see little pockets, and we, we say, well, people, why aren't people coming back to church? I don't know. Why? Maybe that's part of who we are as Christ followers and ambassadors of Jesus is to investigate, to invest, to be intentional. Why aren't you coming back? And it may just be that they never knew Jesus. It may just be that there are some lost folks who had come among us and now when times got hard and we worked through three years of adversity and toughness and hard, and hard times and they just bailed and left because, hey, I was just, I was just there. Be intentional. Verse 19, there is a word that is used, as I mentioned earlier, this word for traveled. Those that were persecuted, the Bible tells us that they they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia to Cyprus, and then to Antioch. And there's this word that is used there. Traveled is in my translation of Scripture. And in this word, travel, there are some synonyms that that are used in different translations and in different interpretation, and, and one of those glosses, and by the way, when you're talking about ancient languages, sometimes you talk about synonyms, we call them glosses. There's different words that are used uh, simply for traveled, and there is a word that can be translated here as its actual meaning, to pierce through. So they pierced through Phoenicia, to Cyprus, to Antioch. They pierced through. Friends, let me tell you this. We look at these empty seats, and there is nothing impossible with our Lord. There is nothing impossible for the Lord to do. In fact, it was the very same Holy Spirit that called the church and saved the church. It was the Holy Spirit that pierced through the darkness of our lost heart and shown the truth of Jesus. You remember the day? Do you remember the day when you were saved? When the Lord Jesus brought you from darkness into his glorious light, these men that I've mentioned, they were men, they were women, they were deacons, they were elders, they were lay people, and they were preaching the gospel of Jesus in a world and a time that is much more hostile, that was much more antagonistic to the good news than our little slice of heaven is here. We have it easy, friends. And so we also must remember that if we are obedient, and if our goal in mind is to reach the lost, if our goal in mind is to reach the wayward, the far from God, if our goal is to reach the undone, then the Lord will be with us in those endeavors. If that is our goal, If that is our goal, friends. And how do I know that? Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is an expression that is borrowed from from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scripture. It deeply implies the Lord was with them every step of of the way. That as they went out, God was with them. They had that goal in mind to be obedient to the Great Commission. But here's some things about that. You must be brave 
you must be courageous, and you must be willing to engage. There, there, there is something a bit courageous about going to a person who is far from God and just talking and striking up a conversation about Jesus. And so I, I, I get that. We must be brave, we must be courageous, and willing to engage. How does it look to pierce through or travel with the gospel? Pierce through the darkness, I would say. It entails that we as a church, we shine a light on error. There's a lot of error in our culture today, especially Christian culture. We shine a light on error. We shine a light on brokenness. We shine a light on lostness. And we shine a light on sin. Now, it is not our own light that we shine. It's the light that Jesus is still in the business of saving people. He's still in the business of not only saving people, but bringing found people back to knowing him in a relational, in a relational way. Not that they have fallen out of salvation, but bringing them to a robust faith. The other day, I was cleaning out next to my computer in our kitchen, and I was moving some things around. And I meant to bring this to, to show you, but I have a little, little keychain light. It's about that big. And I have used it from time to time in darkness trying to find my lock on my trailer, trying to find that keyhole. And I would shine it there. And I saw it the other day next to my com computer. And I said, well, there's where that thing is at. And, and I've changed vehicles so much now, I don't know what keychain goes on what. But I found that thing laying there. And I, and I said, I wonder if this light still works. And and I, and I mashed a button, and to my surprise, it did. Now, the light itself, the, the casing itself, was probably about as big as my fingernail, maybe a little bit bigger. And the light on the end of that was smaller than this, a little teeny LED light. And as I pressed this button, to my surprise, I thought to myself, for such a small little light, it sure does brighten the room. For a small little light, it sure does brighten up things. And I thought to myself, what are the implications for a follower of Jesus to be the light of Christ in a world that is dark, undone, and lost. You know, friends, we are called to be a light for Jesus. We are called to be a light for Jesus. Not the light itself, but a light for Jesus. We just need to go out and shine it. No matter how far along we are in our walk with Jesus... We have that same light. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for 60 years or six weeks. You have the same light. Now, some have shown the light longer than others, and some have shown the light of Christ more frequently than others and longer than others. But we have the same light of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel. And that truth will illumine the dark. It will pierce through the darkness. So that's the question, will you shine for Christ? And I, I'm sure that that question has probably been asked millions of times across time and space. Will you shine for Jesus? We are to shine for Christ. Will you? No matter how cliched you might think that that question is, it simply is a question that is embedded with truth. Will you be a light for Christ and shine in the darkness on error Shine in the darkness on brokenness, on sin. The early church traveled, pierced through with the gospel. And we are called, well, we are called to nothing less than that. These are ordinary people. 
There wasn't anything that was special about them, but by God's sovereignty, he called them to go out. They didn't have a dossier or a portfolio of all the things they did at Capernaum or in Jerusalem. They didn't have a PhD in hand or a doctor of ministry in one hand, and they didn't have degrees hanging on the wall. They didn't have credentials. What qualified them was their obedience, and the only credentials that they really needed was that they were saved by Jesus and sent out by him. Let's follow along in the rest of the narrative. Secondly, we find a dispatching and encouragement, giving aid to the needy. We find in verse 22 that this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas, which name literally means son of encouragement. He came and he saw the grace of God. What is the grace of God that Barnabas saw? He saw that Greeks were added to the kingdom, that God was adding folks who they have thought for, through history had no participation in the grace of God Almighty. And here God has added them to the kingdom. This is the grace of God. He was glad. And the Bible says, and he exhorted them to remain faithful. He challenged them to be faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. See, this is the picture of continuous encouragement from Barnabas. It's not a one and done. Glad you guys are doing good. Pat on the back. I'm going to go to the next city. This is a continual encouragement from Barnabas. And man, I've got to say, church, we need that today. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. Our brothers and sisters on the mission field need encouragement. The church need encouragement. Our pastors need encouragement. Our deacons need encouragement. See, our problem is we look around at our geography. We look at the, the plight of the hospital, which is horrible. We look at the things that have closed down in our county. We look at our downtown, concerned citizens, Martin County. We look at the things all around us, and we look at our church, and we say, mm, I don't know if the Lord can fill these seats. See, our problem is we doubt that God can fill this church with genuine worshipers. We doubt that God is going to do a mighty movement. We doubt that God is going to show up. We doubt that God is going to send us revival. We doubt that God is going to use our deacons and send them out, and they're going to be evangelists as well as deacons. We doubt that God is going to use our children's ministry, and it's going to explode. We have to anticipate that God is going to do something good and then move about like He is doing it. See, we doubt that God is going to fill these gaps. We doubt that God is going to call that wayward, or that lost person back into himself. We know that God is able. We need more encouragers. Look at what Barnabas says. The son of encouragement. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, and great many people are added to the Lord. Maybe they just needed some encouragement to listen to the good news. These people were not of high caliber. They were not of royal pedigree. They didn't have a royal priesthood, but as they were saved, they had a priesthood of the believer. They were simply obedient. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and they, he went up towards Cilicia, and he found him. He brought them to Antioch. Now listen to this. For a whole year they met with the church and they taught a great many people. See, that's our problem too. Not only do we doubt that God is going to show up, we want it done now. God fill this church up now. These things take 
preparation. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes getting in the Word. It takes, uh, it takes getting away some of the baggage that we might have been carrying around for far too long, some of the theological baggage that we may have been carrying along. It, it, it takes learning something of the character and nature of God afresh. The Bible says for a whole year they met with the church, and what did they do? They taught the Bible doesn't say that they threw up a children's program. It doesn't say that they put some type of a fellowship meal in place. It says that they taught. They took time. And they met with great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, what were they called? Christians. First time we see this. Now, you remember the challenge from last week was give us time. Give them time. Take time to evaluate. Take time to get to know the culture you might say, well, I know the culture. We don't know it as well as we think. They went into people's homes. They met with the church, and they taught many people. And this is the first time that we see the church was called Christ ones or little Christ or Christians. Here at Antioch. And they were intentional in engaging with their culture. Then the Lord sends a preacher, a pastor, or a, sorry, a, a prophet to help them prepare for the future even more. The Bible says in verse 27 through 28, In those days the prophets came to Jerusalem, to Antioch, preachers. And there was one of them by the name of Agabus who stood up and he foretold by the Spirit. So he's preaching authentically. In this apostolic age that there would be a time of great famine over the world. And the Lord by his sovereignty sent Agabus to Antioch to prepare. And the Bible tells us as a footnote from Luke in the parenthetical that this took place in the days of Claudius. This prophet named Agabus predicted that there would be a great famine, very reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets who would go into town. This isn't the last time that we see Agabus here, for he will also predict that Paul would be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 21. This is a word from the Lord, and this is going to aid the church in preparing. Now, historically, we see this name Christians as we see it in its initiation as a derogatory term. Oh, you're one of them Christ ones. You're one of those uh, uh, little Christs. It was a derogatory term meant to kind of cut down people who were Christians. But over time, it became a term, a term, a term of endearment. It became a, a term, a complimentary term. Oh, you're one of them Christians. Well, you guys mean you have business. I'll listen to you. It is because of their love for Jesus and for living out the gospel. Now, this derogatory term, term complementary, will come to bear through this time of famine that was accounted for from Agabus, foretold. Because it is during this time these Christ ones will give aid to the hungry and to the needy and will be the hands of feet and feet of Jesus as they reach out and do good work and as they preach the gospel. It will become a term of endearment. Man, have the times changed. You say the name Christian in the world today and you'll get things like hypocritical, two-faced, fighting amongst them. May I even be so brave as to say that we need to go and take our term back? A lot of folks today will just say, I'm a follower of Christ because it has taken on a derogatory flavor this day. Ending out these 
this chapter. Then the disciples, determining to everyone according to his ability, sent relief. This is part of turning that derogatory term into a, a complementary term, a term of endearment. They sent relief to the brothers in Judea, and, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here's the church being the church. Here is the church living out the gospel, not only in sending aid to the hungry, but in the message of the gospel itself. And so we are, as followers of Christ, we are to pierce the darkness with the truth of Jesus and to dispatch with encouragement and goodwill with the good news attached to that goodwill. See, the good work without the gospel is just a social gospel. Good works almost always need to have the good news message. And here are these two questions again. I want you to spend some time alone with the Lord today or this week. Number one, have I prayed fervently for people by name until it becomes part of your TNA? Have I contacted them to see how they are and their walk with the Lord? Have I invested? Have I been intentional? So today we are ordaining two men. But see, all of us are ordained by the Lord to serve the church and to go out with the message of Christ and to be intentional. I'll leave those questions with you today, but I'll ask you if you will, let's pray. Let's pray together.